American Notes, Chapter One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. American Notes by Charles Dickens, Chapter One. Going away. I shall never forget the one-fourth serious and three-fourths comical astonishment with which, on the morning of the third of January, eighteen hundred and forty-two, I opened the door of, and put my head into, a stateroom on board the Britannia steam-packet, twelve hundred tons burden per register, bound for Halifax and Boston, and carrying Her Majesty's mails. That this stateroom had been specially engaged for Charles Dickens, Esquire, and Lady, was rendered sufficiently clear even to my scared intellect by a very small manuscript announcing the fact, which was pinned on a very flat quilt covering a very thin mattress, spread like a surgical plaster on a most inaccessible shelf. But that this was the stateroom concerning which Charles Dickens, Esquire, and Lady had held daily and nightly conferences for at least four months preceding, that this could by any possibility be that small snug chamber of the imagination which charles dickens esq with the spirit of prophecy strong upon him had always foretold would contain at least one little sofa and which his lady with a modest yet magnificent sense of its limited dimensions had from the first opined would not hold more than two enormous portmanteaus in some odd corner out of sight portmanteaus which could now no more be got in at the door not to say stowed away than a giraffe could be persuaded or forced into a flower-pot that this utterly impracticable thoroughly hopeless and profoundly preposterous box had the remotest reference to or connection with those chaste and pretty not to say gorgeous little bowers sketched by a masterly hand in the highly varnished lithographic plan hanging up in the agent's counting-house in the city of london that this room of state in short could be anything but a pleasant fiction and cheerful jest of the captain's invented and put in practice for the better relish and enjoyment of the real state-room presently to be disclosed these were truths which i really could not for the moment bring my mind at all to bear upon or comprehend and i sat down upon a kind of horsehair slab or perch of which there were two within and looked without any expression of countenance whatever at some friends who had come on board with us and who were crushing their faces into all manner of shapes by endeavouring to squeeze them through the small doorway we had experienced a pretty smart shock before coming below which but that we were the most sanguine people living might have prepared us for the worst the imaginative artist to whom i have already made allusion has depicted in the same great work a chamber of almost interminable perspective furnished as mr robbins would say in a style of more than eastern splendour and filled but not inconveniently so with groups of ladies and gentlemen in the very highest state of enjoyment and vivacity before descending into the bowels of the ship we had passed from the deck into a long, narrow apartment, not unlike a gigantic hearse with windows in the sides, having at the upper end a melancholy stove, at which three or four chilly stewards were warming their hands, while on either side, extending down its whole dreary length, was a long, long table, over each of which a rack, fixed to the low roof and stuck full of drinking glasses and cruet stands, hinted dismally at rolling seas and heavy weather. 
I had not at that time seen the ideal presentment of this chamber, which has since gratified me so much, but I observed that one of our friends who had made the arrangements for our voyage, turning pale on entering, retreated on the friend behind him, smote his forehead involuntarily, and said below his breath, "'Impossible! It cannot be!' or worse to that effect. He recovered himself, however, by a great effort, and after a preparatory cough or two, cried with a ghastly smile which is still before me, looking at the same time round the walls. "'Ha! The breakfast-room stood, eh?' We all foresaw what the answer must be. We knew the agony he suffered. He had often spoken of the saloon, had taken in and lived upon the pictorial idea, had usually given us to understand at home that to form a just conception of it, it would be necessary to multiply the size and furniture of an ordinary drawing-room by seven, and then fall short of the reality. When the man in reply avowed the truth, the blunt, remorseless, naked truth, "'This is the saloon, sir,' he actually reeled beneath the blow. In persons who were so soon to part and interpose between their else daily communication the formidable barrier of many thousand miles of stormy space, and who were for that reason anxious to cast no other cloud, not even the passing shadow of a moment's disappointment or discomfiture upon the short interval of happy companionship that yet remained to them, in persons so situated, the natural transition from these first surprises was obviously into peals of hearty laughter, and I can report that I, for one, being still seated upon the slab or perch before mentioned, roared outright until the vessel rang again. Thus, in less than two minutes after coming upon it for the first time, we all by common consent agreed that this stateroom was the pleasantest and most facetious and capital contrivance possible, and that to have had it one inch larger would have been quite a disagreeable and deplorable state of things. And with this, and with showing how, by very nearly closing the door and twining in and out like serpents, and by counting the little washing-slab as a standing-room, we could manage to insinuate four people into it all at one time, and entreating each other to observe how very airy it was in dock, and how there was a beautiful porthole which could be kept open all day, weather permitting, and how there was quite a large bull's-eye just over the looking-glass, which would render shaving a perfectly easy and delightful process when the ship didn't roll too much, we arrived, at last, at the unanimous conclusion that it was rather spacious than otherwise, though I do verily believe that deducting the two berths, one above the other, than which nothing smaller for sleeping in was ever made except coffins, it was no bigger than one of those hackney cabrolets which have the door behind and shoot their fares out like sacks of coals upon the pavement. Having settled this point to the perfect satisfaction of all parties, concerned and unconcerned, we sat down round the fire in the ladies' cabin, just to try the effect. It was rather dark, certainly, but somebody said, of course it would be light at sea, a proposition to which we all assented, echoing, of course, of course, though it would be exceedingly difficult to say why we thought so. I remember, too, when we had discovered and exhausted another topic of consolation in the circumstance of this lady's cabin adjoining our stateroom, and the consequently immense feasibility of sitting there at all times and seasons, and had fallen into a momentary silence, leaning our faces on our hands and looking at the fire, one of our party said, with the solemn air of a man who had made a discovery, "'What a relish malt claret would have down here!' 
which appeared to strike us all most forcibly, as though there were something spicy and high-flavoured in cabins which essentially improved that composition, and rendered it quite incapable of perfection anywhere else. There was a stewardess, too, actively engaged in producing clean sheets and tablecloths from the very entrails of the sofas, and from unexpected lockers of such artful mechanism that it made one's head ache to see them opened one after another, and rendered it quite a distracting circumstance to follow her proceedings, and to find that every nook and corner and individual piece of furniture was something else besides what it pretended to be, and was a mere trap and deception and place of secret stowage whose ostensible purpose was its least useful one. God bless that stewardess for her piously fraudulent account of January voyages. God bless her for her clear recollection of the companion passage of last year, when nobody was ill, and everybody dancing from morning to night, and it was a run of twelve days and a piece of the purest frolic and delight and jollity. All happiness be with her for her bright face and her pleasant Scotch tongue, which had sounds of old home in it for my fellow-traveller, and for her predictions of fair winds and fine weather, all wrong, or I shouldn't be half so fond of her, and for the ten thousand small fragments of genuine womanly tact by which, without piecing them elaborately together, and patching them up into shape and form and case and pointed application, she nevertheless did plainly show that all young mothers on one side of the Atlantic were near and close at hand to their little children left upon the other, and that what seemed to the uninitiated a serious journey was to those who were in the secret a mere frolic to be sung about and whistled at, light be her heart and gay her merry eyes for years. The stateroom had grown pretty fast, but by this time it had expanded into something quite bulky, and almost boasted a bay window to view the sea from. So we went upon deck again in high spirits, and there everything was in such a state of bustle and active preparation that the blood quickened its pace and whirled through one's veins on that clear frosty morning with involuntary mirthfulness. For every gallant ship was riding slowly up and down, and every little boat was splashing noisily in the water, and knots of people stood upon the wharf gazing with a kind of dread delight on the far-famed fast American steamer and one party of men were taking in the milk, or, in other words, getting the cow on board, and another were filling the ice-houses to the very throat with fresh provisions, with butcher's meat and garden stuff, pale sucking-pigs, calves' heads in scores, beef, veal, and pork, and poultry out of all proportion, and others were coiling ropes and busy with oakum yarns, and others were lowering heavy packages into the hold, and the purser's head was barely visible as it loomed in a state of exquisite perplexity from the midst of a vast pile of passengers' luggage, and there seemed to be nothing going on anywhere or uppermost in the mind of anybody but preparations for this mighty voyage. This, with the bright cold sun, the bracing air, the crispy curling water, the thin white crust of morning ice upon the decks which cracked with a sharp and cheerful sound beneath the lightest tread, was irresistible. And when, again upon the shore, we turned and saw from the vessel's mast her name signalled in flags of joyous colours, and fluttering by their side the beautiful American banner with its stars and stripes, the long three thousand miles and more, and longer still, the six whole months of absence so dwindled and faded, that the ship had gone out and come home again, and it was broad spring already, in the Coburg dock at Liverpool. 
I have not inquired among my medical acquaintance whether turtle and cold punch and hock champagne and claret, and all the slight etc. usually included in an unlimited order for a good dinner, especially when it is left to the liberal construction of my faultless friends Mr. Radley of the Adelphi Hotel, are peculiarly calculated to suffer a sea-change, or whether a plain mutton-chop and a glass or two of sherry would be less likely of conversion into foreign and disconcerting material. My own opinion is, that whether one is discreet or indiscreet in these particulars, on the eve of a sea-voyage, is a matter of little consequence, and that, to use a common phrase, it comes to very much the same thing in the end. Be this as it may, I know that the dinner of the day was undeniably perfect, that it comprehended all these items, and a great many more, and that we all did ample justice to it. And I know, too, that, bating a certain tacit avoidance of any allusion to to-morrow, such as may be supposed to prevail between delicate-minded turnkeys and a sensitive prisoner who is to be hanged next morning, we got on very well, and, all things considered, were merry enough. When the morning, the morning, came, and we met at breakfast, it was curious to see how eager we all were to prevent a moment's pause in the conversation and how astoundingly gay everybody was, the forced spirits of each member of the little party having as much likeness to his natural mirth as hot host peas at five guineas the court resemble in flavour the growth of the dews and air and rain of heaven. But as one o'clock, the hour for going aboard, drew near, this volubility dwindled away by little and little, despite the most persevering efforts to the contrary, until at last, the matter being now quite desperate, we threw off all disguise, openly speculated upon where we should be this time to-morrow, this time next day, and so forth, and entrusted a vast number of messages to those who intended returning to town that night, which were to be delivered at home and elsewhere without fail, within the very shortest possible space of time after the arrival of the railway train at Euston Square and commissions and remembrance do so crowd upon one at such a time, that we were still busied with this employment when we found ourselves fused, as it were, into a dense conglomeration of passengers and passengers' friends and passengers' luggage, all jumbled together on the deck of a small steamboat, and panting and snorting off to the packet, which had worked out of dock yesterday afternoon, and was now lying at her moorings in the river. And there she is. All eyes are turned to where she lies, dimly discernible through the gathering fog of the early winter afternoon. Every finger is pointed in the same direction, and murmurs of interest and admiration, as how beautiful she looks, how trim she is, are heard on every side. Even the lazy gentleman with his hat on one side and his hands in his pockets, who has dispensed so much consolation by inquiring with a yawn of another gentleman whether he is going across as if it were a fairy. Even if he condescends to look that way, and nod his head as who should say, no mistake about that, and not even the sage Lord Burley in his nod included half so much as this lazy gentleman of might, who has made the passage, as everybody on board has found out already, it's impossible to say how, thirteen times without a single accident. There is another passenger, very much wrapped up, who has been frowned down by the rest, and morally trampled upon and crushed, for presuming to inquire with a timid interest how long it is since the poor President went down. He is standing close to the lazy gentleman, 
and says with a faint smile that he believes she is a very strong ship, to which the lazy gentleman, looking first in his questioner's eye, and then very hard in the winds, answers unexpectedly and ominously that she need be. Upon this the lazy gentleman instantly falls very low in the popular estimation, and the passengers, with looks of defiance, whisper to each other that he is an ass, and an impostor, and clearly don't know anything about it at all. But we are made fast alongside the packet whose huge red funnel is smoking bravely, giving rich promise of serious intentions. Packing-cases, portmanteaus, carpet-bags, and boxes are already passed from hand to hand and hauled on board with breathless rapidity. The officers, smartly dressed, are at the gangway, handing the passengers up the side and hurrying the men. In five minutes' time the little steamer is utterly deserted, and the packet is beset and overrun by its late freight, who instantly pervade the whole ship, and are to be met with by the dozen in every nook and corner, swarming down below with their own baggage and stumbling over other people's, disposing themselves comfortably in wrong cabins, and creating a most horrible confusion by having to turn out again, madly bent upon opening locked doors, and on forcing a passage into all kinds of out-of-the-way places where there is no thoroughfare, sending wild stirrets with elfin hair to and fro upon the breezy decks on unintelligible errands, impossible of execution and in short creating the most extraordinary and bewildering tumult in the midst of all this the lazy gentleman who seems to have no luggage of any kind not so much as a friend even lounges up and down the hurricane deck coolly puffing a cigar and as this unconcerned demeanour again exalts him in the opinion of those who have leisure to observe his proceedings every time he looks up at the masts or down at the decks or over the side they look there, too, as wondering whether he sees anything wrong anywhere, and hoping that, in case he should, he will have the goodness to mention it. What have we here? The captain's boat, and yonder the captain himself. Now, by all our hopes and wishes, the very man he ought to be. A well-made, tight-built, dapper little fellow, with a ruddy face which is a letter of invitation to shake him by both hands at once, and with a clear, blue, honest eye, that it does one good to see one sparkling image in. Ring the bell, ding, 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 the very bell is in a hurry. Now for the shore, who's for the shore? These gentlemen, I am sorry to say, they are away and never said good-bye. Ah, now they wave it from the little boat. Good-bye, good-bye. Three cheers from them, three more from us, three more from them, and they are gone. To and fro, to and fro, to and fro again a hundred times. This waiting for the latest mail-bags is worse than all. If we could have gone off in the midst of that last burst, we should have started triumphantly. But to lie here two hours and more in the damp fog, neither staying at home nor going abroad, is letting one gradually down into the very depths of dullness and low spirits. A speck in the mist at last. That's something. It's the boat we wait for. That's more to the purpose. The captain appears on the paddle-box with his speaking-trumpet. The officers take their stations. All hands are on the alert. The flagging hopes of the passengers revive. The cooks pause in their savoury work and look out with faces full of interest. The boat comes alongside. The bags are dragged in anyhow and flung down for the moment anywhere. Three cheers more. And as the first one rings upon our ears, the vessel throbs like a strong giant that has just received the breath of life. The two great wheels turn fiercely round for the first time, and the noble ship, 
with wind and tide astern, breaks proudly through the lashed and roaming water. End of chapter 1